0: I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore!
1: As most of you probably know, that was the mad prophet of the airwaves, Howard Beale. The very idea that we can listen to a clip from Network, made in 1976, 38 years ago, and that it sounds as relevant as if it were written yesterday speaks to the genius of Paddy script and the serendipity of the movie and its production. A movie that is at once spot on in its portrayal of its moment in time and yet prescient about something as big and hard to hold on to as the television and media landscape is truly a movie for the ages. Not to put down other efforts, but look at network in the context of the simplicity and gloss of contemporary movies, and you understand why we're still talking about it today. We're also talking about it because my guest Dave Itzkoff, culture reporter for the New York Times, has written the definitive behind-the-scenes story of this iconic film. It is my pleasure to welcome Dave Itzkoff to the program today to talk about Mad as Hell, The Making of Network and the Fateful Vision of the Angriest Man in Movies. Dave Itzkoff, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on.
1: Great to have you here. After 38 years, talk a little bit about what inspired you to want to take this project on.
2: Well, you know, I was very fortunate in that, you know, I was given access to... Paddy Chayefsky's papers, which are owned by the New York Public Library and which, you know, anyone can uh, request access to. They they had invited me to take a look at some documents uh, going back about three years now. Uh, you know, just, just a handful of, of pages, really, that they thought were kind of interesting, and these ranged from, you know, different uh, drafts of the network screenplay to things like, uh, you know, a letter that Paddy Chayefsky had written to Paul Newman, seeing if he could persuade him to play Howard Beale, uh, letters that Chayefsky wrote after the film came out to uh, Walter Cronkite and John Chancellor, essentially apologizing if the movie had uh, offended them in any way. So that to me really suggested a much uh, deeper story about the film than had ever really been told before, than, you know, which I think even really widely known. I think there's a sort of urban legend that's always accompanied this film, this idea that somehow Trayefsky wrote it as uh, an act of revenge or a way of uh, getting back either at the TV industry or at certain people in it. And, uh, I, you know, for one thing, I don't think that that's true. I think that, the, you know, certainly the work that he did bears out a different story. But it's almost sort of reductive. It doesn't give him enough credit for, you know, just how deeply a story he was trying to tell, the, the fuller meaning of what he was trying to get at in this film.
1: Talk a little bit about the evolution of the screenplay, because the movie we see, the final screenplay, was far from where Chayefsky started
2: out. Absolutely. And I mean, you can even make a case that it was something that he had been kind of uh, rehearsing for his whole life. I mean, you see even little touches of it in, in early TV dramas and things like Marty. I mean, the just the, the energy of it and the, the anger of it is there. And even in the late 1960s, he wrote uh, a whole television pilot that was not commissioned uh, one of whose lead characters was a sort of disillusioned television executive who sort of realizes that he is in. Uh, the boredom killing business, which is a line that he would later recycle for uh, for Howard Beale, uh, but yeah, I mean, when he really starts writing this in earnest in the mid seventies, you know, he is just basically visiting the television news operations of CBS and uh, NBC and ABC, not really knowing how they work and not really quite knowing the story that he plans to write, and he it, it, it sort of it fluctuates between, well, you know, will I write something more in the style of the hospital a kind? of day in the life of a big organization, or you know, am I going to write something very satirical? And as as he writes and rewrites and you know refines the characters that we're going to come to know, Howard Beale, Max Schumacher, uh, it becomes uh you know, a much more harder edged movie.
1: You mentioned the hospital, taking a look at these two tent poles of Chayefsky's work dealing with the media landscape and essentially healthcare. If, if from the perspective of forty years ago it 's pretty remarkable
2: yeah you know and in in a way you know i I mean he certainly had his issues with both of those institutions, but I think he was taking aim at them more because you know they were so big and they were so bureaucratic that they could symbolize a lot of different things about American life and how complex and confusing. Uh, it was not so much that he, uh, he did have very specific fears about television in particular, uh, you know, because he had worked in the industry, he had seen how much it had changed since, you know, his sort of heyday, but I, I you know, I can't say for sure that, you know, he really, really knew that, you know, TV in particular was going to go to the places that he imagined it would. I think some, some days he was very, very certain of his own sort of predictive powers. And, uh, you know, some days he would just tell you he was writing uh, a different, you know, he was writing a sort of grander tale about, you know, man's alienation from his fellow man.
1: It was also very much a tale of corporate greed. I mean, Ned Beatty's famous speech is the penultimate example of
0: that.
2: Yes, yes. Uh, you know, I mean, it's certainly, you know, the Beale speech, the, you know, Mad as Hell speech is the most iconic, the one that, you know, people probably still remember the most after all these years, but, you know, Beatty's speech uh, a little later in the movie playing the uh, the corporate titan Arthur Jensen, uh, I mean, in as many ways is, is the counterpoint to that moment. That's the scene where, you know, he tells Beale, you know, there are no nations, there, you know, there is no democracy, there are no peoples, there is just the dollar there's just business and i mean it's uh you know beale when he makes his speech he's crazy but he finds a certain truth in his craziness uh jensen is just pure sober uh sanity and it is uh just as truthful speech talk a little bit about the
1: parallel anger in chayefsky he was a guy that was pretty angry in his own
2: right Absolutely. And 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 certainly, you know, I mean, it had to do with, you know, professional reasons uh, for one thing that, you know, I mean, as successful a career as he seemed to have, I mean, by the time he'd written Network, he'd already won two Academy Awards for writing Marty and for writing The Hospital. And yet, you know, he was perennially frustrated by his TV and film and theater work and always feeling like he never was given the level of control that he was entitled to, never feeling that the messages he was trying to communicate in these works were being received by his audience. So that was certainly bothersome to him. But I think he was he was also the kind of person who was just so uh, deeply attuned to uh, a lot of problems in the world. I mean, whether it was things that were sort of happening, you know, in his own backyard, so to speak, all the... Uh, you, you know, the economic problems that the United States is having in the 70s, that just sort of the post-Watergate feeling of, uh, you know, depression that the country is going through, or if it were, you know, more far-flung things like, you know, panic in the Middle East and, and fear that, uh, you know, Israel is going to be overrun by its Arab neighbors. I mean, any really anything that you could be worried about in the 1970s, he was worried about, and he felt... Uh, that it was his sort of responsibility as a screenwriter that he had to, you know, communicate these things to people and warn them about it. And that uh, he's certainly biting off quite a lot as he sits down to write network.
1: And one of the things that is so remarkable about the film is that you can watch it today and 40, almost 40 years later, it has such a contemporary air about it.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, it's been a real joy just in the course of you know, promoting this book, and we do, we've do. we done a couple events where, you know, we've shown the movie in its entirety, and, you, you know, I I think the movie plays in a very different way now, that people are still laughing at the humor of it. You know, there were very funny lines that Chayefsky wrote that were meant to be funny, and that's a credit to just his... Sense of humor, but there's a, a different layer to it now that you watch it almost as a kind of gallows humor that you 're seeing things that you know in in their original era were meant to be more uh, you know these kind of far flung uh, bits of satire and now it 's really just kind of standard operating procedure for you know how TV networks operate and and we watch it as a modern day audience seeing things that we were warned about and that we didn't we didn't heed back in the day, and now we're just essentially living in the world that it predicted.
1: There's also the sense that, given that so many of the actors that are in the movie are no longer with us, that, in fact, that became, in so many respects, their quintessential performance.
2: Oh, Absolutely. And, I mean, particularly in the cases of, of Peter Finch and, and William Holden, and, and, I mean, Finch, you know, uh, I mean, most tragically died in the course of, you know promoting the film and and didn't even live long enough to uh you know to receive the academy award that he won uh and you know Holden passes away only you know a few years later that uh, whether they knew it or not i mean these people were really giving you know the performances of their lives that that so much of their lives and careers were, you know, building up to the moment of this film and really made them the exact right people to play these characters. And on the one hand, you know, you have Dunaway, who herself was, you know, a huge rising star, Faye Dunaway, and, you know, playing this, uh, you know, very uh, hot up-and-coming, you know, television programmer. And then you have guys like Holden and Finch, who, you know, really were very much dismissed by Hollywood at that point, not really expected to be doing... Uh, you know the best work of their career, and they're playing characters who, in their own industry are are basically you know dismissed and uh, and ignored
1: and neither of them Finch nor Holden or Faye Duna- nor Faye Dunaway for that matter, were the first choices for any of these roles.
2: No, I mean, maybe in the case of Faye Dunaway, you could say she was always in contention. There were a handful of women that included her and Candace Bergen and a couple others that were always in the mix to play Diana Christensen. But for certain, I mean, the role of Howard Beale was very challenging to cast. And, you know, as I mentioned, they did reach out to Paul Newman. They tried George C. Scott, who had starred in the hospital, uh, and any number of other A-listers, whether it was people like Jimmy Stewart or Walter Matthau, uh, and, and for one reason or another, all these people, you know, passed up the role. And, and as much respect as everyone had for Chayefsky and for this screenplay, I think everyone had a certain sense that this was going to be a very uh, contentious and and controversial part, even a little bit, uh, you know, vulgar for its time. There was a lot of, uh, there's a lot of dirty words that get said (laughs) in those opening minutes of the movie. And, uh, you know, maybe that was off-putting to some of them. Uh, You know, uh, Peter Finch, by this point, you know, he's living, even though he had been uh, an Oscar nominee for Sunday Bloody Sunday, he was living in a kind of semi-retirement in Jamaica at this point. And, uh, you know, His manager campaigned very hard just to have him be seen for the role and really had to wait until, you know, Chayefsky and Sidney Lumet and uh, the producer Howard Gottfried had, uh, you know, just about exhausted every other candidate before they finally came to him.
1: Talk a little bit about Sidney Lumet, how he came to this project, because in many discussions of network over the years, He's the one that gets left out. Obviously, he didn't get the Academy Award. He lost it that year to John Abelson, who who directed Rocky. But in fact, there's always talk about the cast, obviously, and, and Chayefsky. And Lumet is often the odd man out.
2: Yeah, uh, certainly Lumet deserves a tremendous amount of credit for the look and the vibrancy and the energy of the movie. And, you know, uh, he, he, of course, had his own background in television in its uh, golden age and had directed a lot of, you know, live programming. And, and you know, he and Chayefsky were, were peers, although they didn't, uh, they, they didn't necessarily know each other that closely, but certainly were aware of each other in that era. And it's one of the reasons why Lumet was sought for the film. But it's also, uh, you know, it's something of a challenge for Lumet because he knows going into this project the way that uh, Chayefsky is going to run it. And essentially, you know, Chayefsky, very rare for a screenwriter, you know, is demanding and, and, and entitled and gets to be on set every single day and is really up close and observing all the filming as it's happening. And, you know, not really to direct the scene or or, you know, control its composition, but just to make sure that the actors are, you know, performing the dialogue as it's written, or as he's written it. So, uh, you know, Lumet knows he has to be, you know, in some ways, either a co-equal partner to his screenwriter on this, or even a little bit... uh, subservient to him and that it's a very unusual role for a director to have to be in but it also speaks to i think Lumet's spirit of collaboration and just you know what a you know a workhorse the guy was i mean it's one of i believe two or three films that he would make in 1976 alone he made Equus that year he goes on to do The Wiz a little bit later so i mean the guy just liked to work and i think he was grateful or at least you know enjoyed the experience of getting to uh, collaborate with Chekhovski, and they—I mean—they very they came very close. In fact, to uh, making altered states together, and uh, a kind of last-minute falling out was the only thing that uh, you know prevented that.
1: It's interesting that it went against the, and and maybe that's one of the reasons Lumet gets left out in so many of these discussions, because when you put it in context of the 70s, Lumet's work goes against that kind of auteur theory that was popular at the time.
2: Well, he certainly didn't like to uh, present himself as an an auteur in the sense that, you you know, I mean, he very much believed that, you know, a movie was the result of you know, a collaboration among himself, its actors, its director of photography, its screenwriter. He would never, you know, as much as his imprint is really on movies like Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon, I mean, you look at those films and nobody else could have made them, and they only look the way they did because, I think, of him. But that's not a role that he would embrace, you know. he and And network in some ways is more... Uh, static than some of the other films that I mentioned of his from that era. I mean, except for, you know, the live TV scenes, which are very dynamic and have a lot of movement to them. Uh, you know, I mean, some of them are, you know, some of those long sequences, because they're sort of driven by these almost theatrical monologues that Chayefsky has written. Uh, you know, I mean, there isn't there isn't quite as much m- camera movement or editing, and so maybe in that sense, people don't realize that uh, you know or they, they don't they don't as closely associate them with Lumet's style as other uh, you know distinctive movies of, of of that period.
1: Talk a little bit about the fear of this movie. There were studio executives that were afraid of making it. they were actors that were afraid of being in it. there was a general sense that maybe this isn't
2: a good idea. <laughs> well, certainly the problem of, uh, you know, I mean, movie studios in general, I think, were just more uh, daring in that era. And, and you look at all the great cinema that came out of it, you know, from the mainstream, not, you know, independent features, but movies that were, you know, produced and financed by, you know, the major studios. Uh, I give them credit for that. But even a project like this, which is essentially using the media to criticize the media, on some level, I think they knew that was going Going to be troublesome, and I think that fear is borne out when the film is released, and you know the TV news industry just you know on mass completely disowns the film and really uh, you know I mean pushes back against it very angrily. That uh, you know not only the the anchors and the uh, the executives who gave Chayefsky access to let him kind of poke around when he was writing the script, but I mean people who either have seen the movie themselves and are just Offended that you know he could have any kind of satiric take on their profession, and even people who haven't seen the movie but just are hearing word of mouth that it's very—I uh, mean, it's their misinterpretation—but they think it's somehow mean spirited, uh, you know, to their job and to their livelihood. It really it shows you how sort of unimpeachable TV news thought it was in the nineteen seventies that they just couldn't even uh, countenance the idea that somebody would make fun of them in this way. Talk a little bit about
1: the difficulties in making the film. The actors weren't the easiest. I mean, there were problems along the way. Faye Dunaway was difficult. Peter Finch, the speech that we played at the beginning, wasn't easy for him to do in its entirety from beginning to end.
2: No, I mean, I, I just think about you know. I mean, this is one of the most iconic scenes in in, in movies, and and literally the, the ma- I mean the 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 master shot of the Mad as Hell speech. That scene of the camera slowly kind of zooming in on him as he's leaning over the desk and getting more and more uh, worked up. Uh, they were only able to shoot that one and a half times. So there's one full take and then there's a half take consisting of about the first minute of it. And that's because when it was shot, you know, Lumet, you know, he, he knew it was going to be a hard scene for Peter Finch and they shot it once all the way through. He had a second camera already loaded with film ready to go for another take. They start to get into it and, you know, as I said, Finch gets about a minute through it and then just kind of you know, runs out of gas and tells them you know, I just can't do anymore. And Lument is fine with that. He was certainly a director who liked to work quickly, didn't necessarily feel that he needed lots and lots of takes of, of every scene. And so that's what they go with. And you'll, if you go back and watch the scene, I mean, you'll see there's lots of coverage and cutaways and, you know, shots of, you know, Faye Dunaway kind of licking her lips and, you know, they're calling around to see, are they shouting in Baton Rouge? Are they shouting in <laughs> Atlanta? But just the sequence of, of Finch, you know, talking straight to the camera—that is, you know, again one and a half takes.
1: Talk a little bit about William Holden, who was at a, at a really difficult place in his career at the time, as you talk about, but who really is, although not as flashy as some of the other performances, the kind of moral center of this movie.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, they, his character, the Max Schumacher character, this this old school. News Director is really the conscience of the, of the film. I mean you can watch again, even in that mad as hell scene, you watch him as everybody else is sticking their heads out the window to yell and he 's just you see him in a window just kind of shaking his head. he realizes that something has gone very wrong here and it 's already out of his uh, control and and hold him to this point i mean he' certainly had a very estimable career he'd won the oscar for style like 17 and he'd been you know the marquee idol of uh sunset boulevard and you know going all the way back even to films like golden boy but uh you know i mean those were those movies were, were many decades in his past at this point and you know i think people were very just dismissive of him uh you know at, at that stage that you know i mean he was thought of as the, i mean he's only about 57 years old when he makes network, but he's already in his industry thought of as this kind of old man, and and really almost it's almost said to his face that you know that he just doesn't he doesn't look like he used to in his uh, in his marquee idol days, and and he recognizes that, and you know I think he is uh, you know I mean in some ways very grateful for a role that lets him kind of. Uh, Embrace that. That again, I mean, we're talking about a character who's supposed to be uh, a little bit defeated and, and certainly treated as if he is uh, is past his prime. And so, in mean, the role of Tim, sort of tap into those feelings.
1: One of the things that I personally have forgotten is that the movie got really mediocre to bad reviews when it first came out. Pauline Kale referring to Faye Dunaway as a, a dirty Mary Tyler Moore, and Frank Rich calling it a mess of a movie. Talk about those reviews.
2: Sure. I mean, there there were some people who championed it early on. I mean, it, it, I'm not just saying this because I work for the New York Times, but the New York <laughs> Times really did uh, get out in front of it. And Vincent Canby was a huge supporter of it. But as you say, I mean, there were other prominent critics who also were very negatively disposed to it, and really just couldn't get a sense of, you, you know, is is it, you know, if it is satire, what is it satirizing, and why is it? What does it seem? So extreme and, and over the top, and even for the people who did support it, even the 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 of the world, uh, there there is this sort of consensus among the critics that you know this is also far flung and it, it just it can't it couldn't possibly be describing. A world that is ever going to exist. It's, it's this really sort of exaggerated presentation of, 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 of things. And, and, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's something I think that we can only kind of see in retrospect as much as the movie itself is kind of, you know, taking on this new validity. I mean, you look at the criticism and you're just like, you know, how did such smart and thoughtful people just completely miss the point? How did they not grasp? uh you know what i mean the, the 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 accuracy of this film
1: and and that really speaks to in a way the fact that we look at it today and say of course I mean, Sybil the soothsayer is not that far fetched today.
2: (laughs) No, nor is uh, you know Mata Hari and her team of spies, or you know the Mount St. Tongue Hour, and you know I mean having reality shows that are you know more or less built around you know if not criminals, then just you know the kinds of people that we shouldn't want to be celebrating as a society. And we've just you know it's something that's happened in increments and little by little. And you know we we are we are very much there, and it, it you know as I, as we were saying earlier i mean it just, it just reminds you as you watch the film now uh, you know how differently it plays that we're we're basically you know we're we're watching the sort of uh you know, the, the the warnings of a man who, you know, was telling us this is what it's going to turn into if we're not more careful. And those warnings were just not listened to.
1: To what extent did people like Marshall McLuhan and others who were writing about images in the media at the time, to what a degree do you think they impacted Chayefsky?
2: You, you know, it's not clear to me that he was that deeply attuned to, you know, that level of, of media criticism. Although if you look at you know, his own writing from that period and, and if you're, uh, uh, you, you know, even looking at, you know, interviews that, that he gave. You know, I mean, he's saying things that, you know, sound very similar that, you know, and you could almost imagine him, you know, being a professional media critic. I mean, he's very cognizant of the fact that, uh, you know, if you put somebody out in front of a TV camera who's talking directly to an audience in that way, uh, that they hold... Tremendous power, and there is a huge danger if that power is not handled responsibly. Uh, you know, in fact, I think one of the most insightful readings of the film, uh, you know, that I was privy to as I wrote the book, it just in ta- talking to somebody like Bill O'Reilly, who I thought was very insightful in sort of describing the movie as much as it is a, a criticism of TV as of its audience, a criticism of the of people who you know watch whatever is put in front of them and then just sort of embrace it. Wholesale, and you you look at what happens to the viewing audience and network, the uh, the studio audience that comes in to watch the Howard Beale show at the end of the movie, and they're just kind of chanting in unison, "I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore." They don't even seem to know why anymore. They don't. They, there's no sort of feeling behind the words. They're just saying it because a TV show told them to say it. It almost It reminds me of, you know, the Oscars the other night that, you know, Ellen DeGeneres tells America, hey, you know, retweet this photo and everybody just does it.
1: It's interesting that you talk to O'Reilly and to Olbermann, two guys that that clearly get it and and have had (laughs) ups and downs in their careers as a
2: result. (laughs) <laughs> I know if there's, there's, there would seem to be very little of anything that Bill O'Reilly and Keith Olbermann can agree on, and yet uh, the movie is a kind of uh, a common ground for them. And, you know, even somebody like uh, Stephen Colbert, you know, when, when you can talk to him sort of outside of the Stephen Colbert character, he's a big fan of, of network as well. They all understand. And they really acknowledge that, you know, I mean, something, many things changed about uh, the you know the TV news business certainly since the release of the film very much so since the 1980s as you know all the networks became part of larger corporate conglomerates uh, all sort of lost the patina of you know they couldn't be lost leaders anymore they couldn't run these massive deficits and somehow news was expected to be profitable in the same way that. You know, sitcoms and dramas are. and at at that point, you know news just became entertainment. And, and and that's something that happened, you know, even really before you know cable TV came around and before you know you had this kind of multiplicity of news outlets and you know these sort of latter day Howard Beale type figures who were not even really, reporting news, but just kind of shouting their opinions and feelings at you. And finally, was Chayefsky happy with the way the movie turned out? Uh, You know, again, he was never totally satisfied with anything that he did. But, you know, he does concede in, you know, really one of the last interviews that he gives before he dies, and he dies only five years after Network comes out, that, you know, Network really was uh it, you know one of the best films that he made that it really did come closest to sort of saying whatever it he felt it was that he was trying to communicate uh although you know it its it you know to the end of his life it remained uh, a little bit irksome to him that you know the the Howard Beale speech and just the catchphrase i'm mad as hell you know became the kind of symbol of the movie that wasn't necessarily the only idea that he was going for.
1: Dave Itzkoff, the book is Mad as Hell, The Making of Network and the Fateful Vision of the Angriest Man in Movies. Dave, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was my pleasure.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.